0: Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne.
1: Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne. And with me today is the highly knowledgeable Dr. Rowena Mobs. Rowena, how are you?
2: I'm good, Tom. Thanks for having me on.
1: Excellent. Listen, I've been wanting to get you on for some time because you're a fabulous public speaker. You've got a lot of qualifications and knowledge under your belt. But as much as I know about you, the listeners may not. So can you tell the listeners basically what you do and a little bit about yourself?
2: Absolutely. And you're too kind. Thank you, Tom. But I have studied for many years. (laughs) I've got my qualifications. My total study time was 15 years, becoming a neurologist with a PhD. I did my PhD in spinal injury, actually, but that translated not too badly as far as head injury goes and different types of inflammation and cell death. But then I, I have become a cognitive neurologist. So this is a relatively new field of dementia specialist neurologists in the country who also now focus on head injury, in particular chronic traumatic encephalopathy and concussive disorders as well. My background is actually in sport. I a long time ago, before I studied too much and had kids, I used to be an athlete. I represented Australia in fencing and modern pentathlon. I taught myself how to play footy. In those days when I was a kid, we didn't actually have a chance to play football. It just wasn't the done thing for women. So that's how long ago it was. But I'm very passionate about sport and maintaining Australia's strength in these contact sports and but encouraging safety parameters and that we can hopefully become leaders in concussion safety and neurological well-being as well.
1: Excellent. Now a few things that spark when you talk about and you've just spoken is dementia. Mm. We mm. usually associate that with old age. Is all dementia associated with old age?
2: Not at all. Unfortunately, we have seen in the last year or two, this recognition of childhood dementias and that's, that's to do with development and genetics largely, but I work in the world of adult dementia. And, you know, for example, the youngest patient I've had with Alzheimer's disease, which is your most common type of dementia is 38. And it's not uncommon that in my clinic, I will see people in their fifties with Alzheimer's disease. Then we're talking here about this other type of dementia, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that really long name or CTE, caused by repeated concussion, but also sub-concussion, the little knocks without symptoms that happen to cause microscopic injury in the brain and trigger this abnormal protein cascade. A lot of those patients are in their 40s and 50s and 60s. When I completed my medical training, 70 was kind of old. Now it's middle age and we're all expecting to live into our 90s, or ho- hopefully, hopefully well, and we're surviving our heart and lung disease and all of that. Now dementia is the number one killer, the number one cause of mortality in Australia. So I'm really passionate about dementia as a whole, but also reversible, or not necessarily reversible, but preventable dementia. CTE is preventable.
1: Yeah, it mentioned briefly reversible is cte Mm. i'm not even going to have and i'm not even going to have a go at the the last word because i'll just make a muff of it but is cte basically a death sentence
2: oh i'd never like to phrase it as that death and damage and all those emotive words. But at the end of the day, it's a it's an inexorable decline pattern that we see in all types of dementia. I think I said reversible as a bit of a Freudian slip because, you know, we all really want reversibility. We don't have any disease modifying agents or reversibility for almost all types of dementia. There are some rare exceptions like alcohol, dementia, if you stop drinking, you might improve or types of hydrocephalus, water on the brain, you know, maybe we can put a shunt and relieve that. Oh, but CTE, we have no cure or changing the path. And we see this really slow decline in CTE. One of the key characteristics that differentiate it from other types is that it's a 10 or 15 or even 25 year progression rather than an Alzheimer's, let's say, which usually completes its course within a decade. And many other fast types of dementia. So I think we partly missed it because it is so slow. Partly we're not we haven't been aware of it in sports outside of boxing, and partly we just weren't trained to ask about sub concussion history and exposure over the number of years to repetitive head injury. So it's a really interesting field.
1: Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned prevention. Mm. Mm. Now I don't know. A lot of people, and it does. it's not just an Australian thing, despite what Australians think. A lot of people think that the big, heavy physical contact sports, that if we start to question whether they're actually safe for the individuals participating in it, in the Australian context, you're liable to be called un-Australian. I know in America, you'd be called un-American. It's not about attacking the sports or the national character, is it?
2: Not at all, not in the slightest. I I think no matter what I say or do, we're still going to play contact sport in Australia and I'm very pleased about that. I think they're wonderful sports because I grew up in Canberra, which is kind of like Switzerland for football and neutral territory. I followed all of the codes very vehemently. I respect them and I think they've got wonderful aspects not least of all medically, is a longevity, a improved life expectancy from your vascular health through sport, let alone the happiness and psychological benefits, social benefits, et cetera. It's just that now we're maybe looking at possibly up to 10% of professional athletes in, in contact football, if we base it on the early American evidence, that could have CTE. And so obviously we need to address that urgently what could be more important than the brain health of our children going through life especially knowing that dementia is the number one killer so i see it as this real opportunity for sport to make it safer encourage participation still have parents satisfied that their kids will be safer and look at your brain health overall we can see this opportunity here to educate kids about how cool their brain is and and the ways that they can look after it lifelong so there's nothing for sport really to be afraid of here. It's just going to be a necessary transitional process that we're facing.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Are you
1: are you happy with the sort of, or we'll say, control measures that are currently put in place to prevent concussions in contact sports? I mean, I see. I mean, when I grew up, which was a, an awful long time ago, wearing a, uh, any sort of head protection was unheard of. But you see. Not only a few of the star footballers, and I still say a few, wearing them now, but you see a lot of the kids when they're coming through are starting to wear head protection and that. Does that actually make any difference?
2: Not in terms of concussion. The evidence builds and builds that it doesn't really stop the shaking of the brain. There might be some technologies in future which are extra cushioning or some, some sort of bracing or something to improve the shaking of the brain, which rings like a bell when you have a head hit. It's actually 50 hertz. So fifty times a second, this shaking reverberation throughout the brain. So how do you stop that with a helmet? You don't really, probably. Then there's evidence, and I hear this anecdotally from my football patients that they feel really confident and like they're wearing armor, like a superhero, and they'll mm-hmm. go in harder to tackle wearing headgear. But but the the real benefit, I guess, of headgear is that it does protect you from fractures of the skull and probably major brain bleeds and that kind of thing but after all that's really rare in football we do see it the boxers should wear headgear for that reason it's more common to have a more severe traumatic brain injury and, and skull fracture in that instance but in in football in general it's not going to be the answer probably mm.
1: yeah what whatever happened to the there's a big push about I think 10 or 15 years ago about boxing to make it safer etc and I, I'd never heard anything actually changed. Did anything change?
2: I'm not sure exactly because I haven't, you know, followed it extremely closely. But I am aware that there were a couple of deaths of boxers mm-hmm. in I think 2015, and they had I think it was extradural hematomas. So you've at your temple, there's a very thin plate of bone, and underneath that bone is an artery. So if you fracture that thin plate, you can get a massive brain bleed and and death from that. I think, you know, looking at what we've seen in the Senate inquiry, I'm sure we'll talk about that more. But the recent parliamentary inquiry, Boxing Australia spoke, and they actually have nicely conservative protocols for concussion of 30 days rest as a mandated rest period after that. So there are, it seems to be a mixture of perhaps some good and bad in boxing. I mean, there are it's a head injury sport. The idea is to knock your player out, your opposition out, sorry. And obviously there can be potential conflicts with referees, medical staff, coaches, etc. So it's a complicated picture there. Um, Australia ultimately does not have anywhere near the number of professional boxers as we do players in contact sport. I think in okay. rugby league, the recruitment annually is around 160,000 participants <laughs> versus I have heard about 100 pro boxers.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Is CTA, does that come about through, can it come about through a NOX or is it multiple repeated knocks over a period of time?
2: It's multiple repeated knocks. So I do see, for example, netball players, hockey players who might be worried they've got CTE. We're certainly not out to cause any alarm in those groups. If you have the odd concussion, it's not it's not going to contribute in that way to CTE. If you, We do have research showing that if you've had a moderate traumatic brain injury, i.e. something actually showing on your scan, like a bruise or a bleed or a scar to the brain, that right. technically you're at an increased risk of dementia lifelong. But that's very different to CTE. CTE patients, we're typically talking... 20 to 30 years of recurrent exposure to head knocks through their football from a really young age often like age five and they might be able to recall although some can't recall their concussion history but many report over a hundred concussions many (laughs) will say I've had one every two weeks so that's the sort of frequency we're looking at
1: yeah yeah I was listening to um, James Graham earlier oh very smart man, very smart man. Yes. And I must say, congratulations on him actually doing the podcast he's doing. And he, he's speaking to Wally Lewis, and he's Wally Lewis was saying his honest opinion is that if every rugby league player went and got a scan, they'd find the dark areas in the brain where bleeds have actually happened, micro bleeds have actually happened. It is, would you reckon that would be the case or?
2: not at all. I think it won't be everyone. Many people are resilient genetically and they may be in a better position on the field or not going as hard or not be targeted as much. We, we tend to find the, the really gifted players who are, you know legends of the game, They're re- they've been really targeted for a lot of heavy knocks and sustained a lot of concussion, like James Graham. But at this stage it's a big unknown. We do not know how many players have CTE. From contact football in australia for the last five years we've been trying to study that but without the significant injection of funding into this type of research australia will be blind going forward it's going to take five to ten years to actually get the longitudinal research and statistical analysis to understand more about how much ctu we're facing then you've got things like scars on the brain and white matter changes so White matter is the connecting fibers or the highways of the brain that take signals back and forth between neurons. And we know that recurrent head injuries can be associated with more white matter changes. And in some players I see they've actually got frank scarring or microbleeds as well and these other changes that can associate. So we're not trying to be alarmist and say, oh, my gosh, you know, all of these players are going to have an issue on their scan. But we are saying we think there could be a substantial percentage of players affected through some, some way through head injury, whether it be white matter changes, whether it be CTE, and we ought to look at this very closely.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's not just, it's just not
1: a safety issue and a health issue. I mean, we're talking about if you've got a significant number of players who are developing I don't know, early onset dementia, that's got to be a huge, a huge burden on the public health system down the track.
2: Absolutely. And what we're finding is it's very likely to be a burden on the carer or the spouse on their health. They they often neglect their health. They're looking after an individual. They are, in many circumstances, where we're actually looking at CTE, becoming full-time carers as their loved ones approach nursing home and things like that. Plus, you've got the children involved, who you know, unfortunately, may be at risk of head injury themselves. CTE patients can tend to get very, you know, rage or anger attacks that can upwell very quickly, and in some cases, there's domestic violence and a cycle of head injury. Very sadly, so. We, and then these young players who ought to have been in the prime of their life, still working in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they lose that ability over time, over this long 25-year dementia. Then, of course, the life expectancy is less, and so they're losing their their chance to be grandparents and to live into retirement well with their partner, and it's really sad.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, I see the AFL... Recently committed $25 million for a 10-year concussion study as part of their, I don't know, I, 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 I'd love to say commitment to it, but I would say a forced reaction to some of the work that you you and others have done. So, congratulations on that. You. <laughs> it would. Oh, seriously. Thank you. And It's going to help people. is a good thing. But whether rugby league or not, or rugby union, or any of these other sports, come to the party and 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 do similar things. Do you think it would be nice if individual clubs basically volunteered that 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 they take part in a, in some sort of study to actually you know do it over a period of time because. Realistically, it's about protecting your players. It's about knowledge about what conditions may be coming up and what their life's going to be about. I can't see a lose situation no. for, for any club, individual club to just put their hand up and say, can we actually be part of a
2: study? Yeah, absolutely. I can, I, two sports come to mind. One is, you know, the coaches caring about their participants in football, but also the trainers caring about their jockeys in racing. So they sustain mm-hmm. a lot of head injuries. And, and my mum was a horse trainer. I know how much they care about their jockeys. So, and we have had cu- clubs, certain clubs approach us and discuss those sorts of opportunities. I guess ultimately it's big business and these football codes have their own leadership. They have their own funding of research and they may not necessarily in the past have been very supportive of this type of research. And so I think, you know, we are seeing, as you mentioned, the sort of reactionary plans coming out. But to date, I, you know, our research program hasn't really had a meaningful discussion with the codes and, you know, we're all here to help. But there's this barrier, I guess, in terms of commercial, financial, litigious considerations. But there's a lot of good sentiment ultimately, particularly from the old leagues clubs as well. I think there are a lot of good people former players, families of players who are desperate to help this situation and put their hand up for research, which would be very admirable. But at the end of the day, research will require money. It's going to be expensive because it's neurology in the brain and we can't proceed with that work until we have support.
1: Yeah, Strangely enough, because it is a Senate inquiry into concussion and CTE, do you think, even though the budgetary position, no, it's not the world's best, let's be honest Mm. about it, but do you think that actually getting some funding from the federal government to actually or even state governments as well to actually help you know fund some of this research would actually be an investment and save the mo- potentially save money 10 or 20 years down the track
2: Absolutely. I think there'll be a huge benefit for their investment if state or federal government choose to inject more money into this field. We have seen through the Mission TBI program, so that's the the government research program into head injury research, an injection of $51 million over several years. That's been wonderful. But a lot of that work hasn't necessarily targeted this very niche group of CTE. And so I would like to see that named as a priority area for government to target that and, and provide grant opportunities with, you know, open sort of peer reviewed processes for funding into that field. Whether it's us doing the work, or whether it's another group, I don't mind. But I, I do at this stage have 187 patients under watch in my research program who have high risk of CTE. And so we'd like to see that work translated, ultimately. And ultimately, the government will get back um, not only savings for the health dollar in terms of better care and management and detection of, of these players at risk, but also I think it could well extend to areas such as falls in the elderly, domestic and family violence, particularly in women, and other vulnerable groups through occupational health risk of repeat head injury and CTE risk.
1: If, we're, if, if we were able to develop through the research some better methods of, I don't know, prevention of damage to the brain, concussions, et cetera, and all that, Realistically, you're looking at delaying people going into, a large group of people potentially, going into nursing homes prematurely, aren't you?
2: Absolutely. And, and as I said at the start, this is a real opportunity to grab with two hands this this sporting awareness of our brain health, teach kids to really look after themselves, you know, not drink too much like many people do through life or at college or whatever, you know, avoid drugs, look after their blood pressure and their cholesterol and their vascular risk in life. Not to be alarmist, again, not to increase health anxiety too much, but we see public health campaigns all the time, like for melanoma or for lung cancer risk and smoking. And so why wouldn't we now in this century of the brain really look at our own risk in Australia, keep Australians living well into old age without dementia? And how much value would that be to the community and, and economically, probably? It's huge. Yeah.
1: Do you think there'd be any benefit in getting some sort of training for junior coaches and, I don't know, the the lesser club officials in recognising symptoms of concussion?
2: Absolutely. So there are some emerging programs around concussion education I've seen in different sports. What we're really missing is a national consistent approach. And Mm -hmm. I know the government is focusing on on the future and developing protocols for concussion and safer management and really removing that pressure from individual sports to come up with this themselves. We're talking about complex science here and we're going to need the nation experts to get together and create the protocols. But certainly I think education is really important. We actually have a program at Macquarie University called the Concussion Big Five, and this is essentially how to teach yourself be a neurologist. You know, it's not not hard. You can do it. We all intuitively know what concussion looks like from watching it on the telly, and you're looking at a the five signs of slump, slow, slur, sway, and stun. So in terms of slump, that's a a knockout. You know, the player's unconscious on the field. You might actually see seizure-type clenching of the fists as well. The brain gets irritated and can have seizures. They can be slow to get up. They can stumble and sway. They can look stunned or confused. And they can be slurry or only partially responsive and just not right in their speech. So how easy is that to learn those five signs? And anybody like a spectator, referee, commentator, coach, fellow players could detect that and say, uh-uh, your brain is telling us you've had a concussion. It doesn't matter what symptoms you report now. You have had a concussion. Please come off the field and don't don't come back. We need a recovery period.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds very similar to the highly successful slogan around stroke, which is the, the the lovely fast. If you can get that on the same level, that'd be good. We we seem to glorify in contact sports... Um, the person who soldiers on, the person who, regardless of the injury or the head knock, just keeps going. I, I, I still remember that grand final Canterbury versus the South Sydney and basically Sam Burgess was concussed in the first tackle mm. and yet yet we we celebrated the club's decision to let him play on the whole game and I think he was actually given the, the man of the match award in the end. How hard is it for clubs to actually develop and then enforce policies and procedures that are, I don't know, are based on science rather than on what the coach feels is best at the time.
2: Yeah. Well it's it's not hard if you've if you've got good education, cultural change. And independent practitioners, truly independent, who have not been employed by or are not employed by the sport specifically, club doctors, for example, may potentially have a conflict of keeping their players on versus taking them off, potentially. But certainly, yeah, I think there there is a role for cultural change here. I see it in my players anyway. Like they they are very smart, so they have a higher intelligence than than we might expect. You know, they're very often very smart in, in our baseline testing. And they want to look after their brains. Yes, they would want to play football and many would say I, I would still play again, but they would want some safety parameters around that. It's very different to push through, pushing through pain in terms of a, you know, a corky or a muscle muscle injury or what have you, something that is very likely to reverse and be treatable and you'll be back to normal versus your brain, which is soft. Delicate can have irreversible damage and now we're seeing the effects of that much more care ought to be taken and players need to have that pressure removed they also need to be aware that there are often delayed symptoms of concussion and some of the latest studies particularly one recently out of Cambridge University is identifying that 47 percent of people at six months are still not right after concussion on testing or on scans of their brain so I just think we need to be more cautious here and we would generally advocate a a month off or 28 days approach rather than this 11 12 14 days
1: she'll be right in three days as we've seen (laughs) even even (laughs) this year it's just like are you kidding me you were knocked out on field and (laughs) You somehow think you can come back. It's a great sentiment, but, you know, it's not reality.
2: Absolutely. Oh, and they, they can still be exciting, can't they, Tom? Don't you agree? You can still be oh, a tough game and not get Oh,
1: mad. Oh, that would <laughs> be the, the aim of it. Is it. Is it likely that you become more susceptible to becoming concussed the more often your head gets hit?
2: Mm, it is it's been shown time and again and it's common in our clinics so I call it the concussion crescendo effect where you know and we see it with players I guess you might think of people like Kalen Ponger or
1: want to say the nine.
2: Or who knows <laughs> potentially some players are having a ramping up effect of concussion and and you know the old term for it was a weak jaw or a soft jaw and unfortunately we seem to see players maybe potentially be targeted by the opposition for their soft jaw. So this is a a really dangerous situation and it's dangerous in in the, the rare syndrome of second impact syndrome, where you can actually die from having a second concussion if it then triggers brain swelling. That's really rare worldwide, but nonetheless, it's still a risk within a month. Within a month is the highest risk. But secondly, why wouldn't brain health be part of good athletic performance? we're talking about these strategic sports where you need to make decisions in a rapid way. I would again, go back to looking after players. If I were a coach, I'd really want to make sure my players were healthy from a brain perspective too, and give them plenty of recovery time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that question was basically a Kaelin Pongan question because <laughs> yeah. I, I, I saw him as a very young, young gentleman to come through the Cowboys and excitement plus absolute excitement plus but got concussed a couple of times and now because he's such a key player it seems opposition sides are just basically going out trying to knock his head off because they know one head knock that's the end of Kaelin for the day and maybe for weeks in advance it, it's oh, mm, I, I, I feel for the young man I really do because without these head knocks looking for a a hell of a long-term and exciting career but uh, yeah I just don't know what the future will hold for him I mean if you keep getting knocked out and if you keep having these concussions literally every time you come back it can't it can't be something you'd be thinking about as a long-term career well surely not
2: oh it's a it's a delicate discussion isn't it between the doctor and the the player I would say that a lot of patients also seem to have um, long post-concussion migraine. So this is a little known phenomenon, even though it's quite common in the clinics where you can have dizziness or nausea or light sensitivity that may not be purely the concussion. It might be post-traumatic migraine and neurologists can treat that very well very often. Perhaps that would change a trajectory of someone not sustaining so easily their repeat concussion, but I, I'm not sure of that I think the science is out on that. But clinically we would want to treat for migraine too.
1: Okay. Speaking of symptoms, what are the typical symptoms of CTE?
2: Ah, so CTE rather than concussion? Yeah. Yeah. So CTE is a unique dementia, as I mentioned. It's got its very characteristic signature. So people can seem very normal on the outside. They can pull up a good story together, tell the old joke. Unfortunately, it tends to be the repeated joke and they have trouble learning in their new environment. They might have increasing trouble in their workplace. They can probably still work, you know, for quite some years, but their performance is not quite right. They're not learning their working memory is down or episodic memory, as we would say. Eventually then that does spread to other cognitive issues like a loss of language, visuospatial difficulties, frontal difficulties are really common. So the front of our brains is our command centre. So that's our ability to plan and judge and execute complex tasks and multitask, for example, so that ability can go. Then you've got this involvement of what we used to call the limbic system. So this is the emotion centre of the brain wrapped up in those sorts of planning and execution of tasks and, you know, it connects to many areas throughout the brain, but emotion is the heart of that And, and awareness. And players can lose awareness that they're affected, so we often rely on the family history they can have symptoms of depression, but it might be very severe at times, spikes of suicidality, more than what you would typically see. And a lot of the sports will come back and say, well, depression is really common. Most people who, if they're depressed, will fulfill criteria for CTE. But we're not talking about that. We're not talking about depression that can be, you know, very easily treated with psychology and medication. We're talking about a cognitive decline accompanying that, a true dementia pattern, a loss of brain volume on our test, on our scans. Then you've got these symptoms of irritability and rage. And it, it's an upwelling that's different to their usual. They weren't always ragey. They might get a minimal trigger rage. So the kids have left a pile of clothes on the floor and they flip into an angry rage. There might be a person in front of them in a queue at the supermarket rage. They might have a road rage incident for minimal trigger and our, our spouses of these patients or, or partners will tell us they are walking on eggshells all the time. They they have to be very careful otherwise the rage will come out. And often they'll make inappropriate social commentary and they have to spouse us to kick them under the table, for example, you know so these are you know very serious behavioral regulation changes. Then we test them neuropsychologically and they are not normal cognitively. They follow a typical dementia path. And so they're they're the main symptoms that we see.
1: Mm. What sort of treatment does someone who got CT, is there a treatment that they can follow or that will will basically ease the symptoms?
2: Absolutely. So our whole world as neurologists, particularly cognitive neurologists, and I would say lots of geriatricians and, and neuropsychiatrists, are good at managing those mood symptoms so we can steady the ship and often get them on well-tolerated, low-side-effect medication that's effective. We can help them environmentally. We can work with expert clinical neuropsychologists. I can also offer them some dementia medication. We do have some medication that can help memory. And I'm seeing some good improvements in in a fair number of our CTE patients with standard dementia memory medication. And we wrap them up in the usual supports we would from Dementia Australia. We connect them with others, which is really therapeutic. We have a group called Concussion Connect, formerly Circle CTE, that probably has been our, our best therapy, really so it's it's families helping families and it is guided by neurologists and researchers and experts but we find solutions together as a group in a circle patients in one room family in another and that's really been a, a well received program that people do typically find really helpful
1: okay if you've if you are an individual and you've suffered many head knocks in the past how do you go about how do you go about getting help to see if you actually are at risk of developing CTE?
2: Well, I'd of course, go see your doctor. I think that is really important. It, it, of course, might seem intimidating and scary, but you can just go in for a bit of a memory checkup. Often that your GP might consider referral to a cognitive expert and neurologists are well-versed in helping people in this circumstance with any any memory loss, any change in mood, change in behaviour, and and so I think that's an easy first step. As neurologists, we might then go on and do some MRI brain scans, sometimes electrical testing, EEG, or PET scans for metabolism and other testing and the neuropsychology testing. But the first step is to, I think, talk to your family, talk to your doctor, maybe get your family's outside perspective on how you've been um, and trust that we we often can help and that Rather than being fearful that you might have CTE, we can often ameliorate that fear. It may be that you do turn out to have those features, but we can often help you and it's less fearful for people then to deal with the situation rather than sit in silence.
1: Yeah, no, that's good. All right, back to concussions a little bit. Individuals who take part in contact sports, is there measures, because I don't know any, is there measures that they can take to at the risk of concussion?
2: Yes, yeah, so, or just repeated head injury overall. So we could consider in Australia to regulate and say that people should start playing contact sport a bit later. In the States, they've had this Tackle Can Wait program from age 14 onwards for Tackle American Football. They do highlight that you've got double, your, double the risk of CTE if you start at age 5 versus 14. So, you know, the longer you play, the higher your risk of CTE. Um, the earlier you play, the earlier you may manifest CTE. So we can start later. We can certainly modify things like heading and training. We can lower the contact burden and head injuries in in other codes of football. We can certainly consider players retiring at a At a younger age, possibly, would that be the worst thing in the world? A lot of players do tell me it wouldn't be. They would be open to retiring a bit earlier. You know, maybe that would make a difference for some people. And then we can have a really good culture, as I said, around looking after people if they have had a concussion. One might also in future consider, you know, they're they're looking at mouth guards monitoring for head injury burden. And maybe there'll be technology that comes along that can help us monitor, much like you would a radiographer for radiation in the workplace. Or if you're a asbestos worker, you get an x-ray every five years of your chest for Mm. asbestosis and mesothelioma. So we could do that monitoring type situation. Safety legislation. That has been one of the calls during the Senate inquiry from the Players Association, for example, they see that as a good avenue. At the very least, I would think that the government might want to have some sort of shared player fund that could fund any injury cover after all you know these are difficult neurological disorders we're talking about they're costly a player certainly I would think at the age of 20 may not realize what they're in for and that they may sustain a, a CTE dementia from this and what that would mean 25 years of of medical care you know so and and effects on their workplace and their family life and longevity so I think it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of the report in June from the Senate. I'm really hopeful they'll provide some firm structure for sports and, and you know, a bit more of a stick than a carrot approach, but also alleviate the pressure from the sports in that way, in that it's a whole of, you know, the government can assist. It's a national issue. We're not just talking about sport, which is 20% of head injury. We're talking about the other 80%. And we're talking about domestic and family violence and important things like that. So, and military, of course, blast exposure. So, We need a big perspective approach and that's what the federal government's for.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Do you you get
1: frustrated when high profile coaches make, I don't know, absurd comments like it's making the game unmanageable and stuff like that?
2: Well, everyone has a right to their opinions. I I like to follow a non-inflammatory path. Patients are my number one concern (laughs) and, and I don't think we need to have a, you know, a too inflammatory discussion around this. We, we agree. We agree that we need sport. We like sport in Australia. We want to see the survival of the sports. I'm not some, you know, I didn't decide one day, wake up and decide I wanted to get rid of football. No, no, <laughs> I just no. decided I seeing people in trouble constantly coming through my clinic and we have to do something. So we can, we can see eye to eye on this. And I think again, the Senate inquiry will help sort out some of that wheat from chaff and, and get a more sensible discussion going.
1: Uh, as I said, we've seen the different sporting codes make some modifications this year as, I don't know, publicity has ramped up. In your opinion, has what the major codes of sport done actually sufficient?
2: No, no, it's been like pulling teeth actually to be honest. You know, the number of calls we've, we've made, it's not just myself, many of my colleagues are concerned, see the building evidence for for things like CTE and concern over repeated concussion. And yet we've seen, you know, it seems to be a real reluctance to have a mandatory stand down period of any substantive length of time versus let's say if you had a hamstring tear <laughs> or a fractured ankle, you would take more time off, wouldn't you? It couldn't be the worst thing in the world if we did have some more stringent mandatory stand-downs. At least I think there could be more communication between scientists and doctors and the government who might be concerned about CTE and the sporting bodies themselves to help work with with on the issue rather than against on the issue. I think that there has been a shift anyway because CTE has been recognised by the major U.S. health organization, the National Institutes of Health, is being caused by head injury, and so people are moving on. It's time for the sports to be more transparent and open to change on this issue, and I I think we'll get there. I think we're seeing those shifts just coming in now. But but the NF, you know, the American football NFL, they had their first case of CT in two thousand and five. We we have lost a lot of years here. <laughs> Awaiting better research and better concussion protocols in our country. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Got time for probably one more question. Save this one up deliberately.
2: Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, in in
1: America, but it's also around the world, and you see it all on social media, there's been the rise of a new sport in the last few years, slap fighting. You've seen that?
2: Oh, I have not. Oh in my life, goodness!
1: It's just been bought <laughs> by the the guy who does who is in charge of cage fighting. He thinks is an absolute winner, where they literally candidates literally stand their open palm and slap each other in turn until one person cannot basically take it anymore. Concerned. <laughs>
2: Yes, it's a contact sport. By the sounds of things, that immediately raises my concern. <laughs> but I, I can't see that taking off somehow. Curious, curious sport. I,
1: you will be surprised. Do, do type into <laughs> type into Google or YouTube slap fighting. You'd be oh, surprised wow. that it's. Oh, I me. thought
2: I thought ping pong would have a, a reinvigoration and take off as a sport, but oh, slap fighting maybe. Maybe in some <laughs>
1: countries, in <anyhow. laughs> All right, Dr. Rowan and Mobs, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I thank you so much for your time today, but we have run out of time. But I do look forward to speaking to you again soon.
2: Thank you so much, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne.
2: Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week.